Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Linda Greenhouse, the great New York Times reporter covering the Supreme Court for decades and now a Yale Law School professor. No one's better to talk about the court than Linda Greenhouse. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsroarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsor, Real Paper, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting the sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, before the surprise session uh, of the January 6th committee this week, John Dean said, this buildup, with all this buildup, it better really be big. It was. Cassidy Hutchinson, that 25 or maybe 26 now, a year old, former aide, top aide to Mark Meadows, was in the room when Trump wanted the mob armed with Glocks, guns, and AR-15 rifles and other weapons. He wanted them into his rally uh, that morning, and he told the security people, let them through, take down the mags. They're not here to kill me. Let them in, and then they're going to go to the Capitol. So he knew, he knew that that an armed mob was headed to the Capitol to try to violently, if necessary, overturn an election. This is such a big deal, James, because the criminal case against Trump beforehand really was a bit tenuous. It rested largely on his incendiary speeches and comments and emails. You had to convict him on intent and speech, and it's hard to do that with speech. It really is. This goes well beyond that. This goes to intent. He knew what was going to ha- happen. And, you know, speaking of Mr. Dean, I'm old, so I had a sense of great deja vu. I was in that caucus room in 1973 when John Dean testified, and I remember it was electric. You were stunned at, A, how good he was, and, B, what he was saying. You had that holy shit moment. Watching on television, I had that same reaction to Cassidy Hutchison as Liz Cheney led her through uh, those infamous days when Trump and company were trying to sabotage American democracy. You know, there were other Hutchison missiles. Mark Meadows wanted to get a pardon. There's only one reason he wanted a pardon, because he was guilty. Uh, she reiterated uh, Pence's, uh, excuse me, Trump's indifference to Pence when, his, when he was in peril. But I'll tell you something, 49 years from now, we ain't going to be here, James, but our kids are going to remember Cassidy Hutchinson, I suspect, the same way we remember and know John Dean today. You know, I'm going to give our listeners some little background here that they might not be aware of. The person behind all of this was one Jeff Sessions. Now, if you remember, Jeff Sessions was the first United States senator to endorse Trump, Right. And he was Trump's attorney general. And Trump hated him because he correctly recused himself from the Russian case, all right? So then she has another lawyer. On June the 5th, she hires her new attorney, okay, Jody Hunt. And you know what Jody Hunt's job was before this? He was Jeff Sessions' chief of staff. This is Shakespearean shit that we watched at these hearings. And her attitude, and she was so prepped, so well prepped, uh, her by demeanor, her dress, everything. This was all 
Jeff Sessions people getting Donald Trump back. I promise you. And it was great theater. And, you know, I, I suspect that Sessions has got a, you know, his old kind of Southern Alabama things of his honor and that. And he stuck it up Donald Trump's ass and broke it off big time. And that's what that's the real story behind this. This is a Shakespearean play that you just seeing unfolding. And by the way, it's not gonna stop unfolding. There's more coming. Stand by. Well, there was more actually um on Tuesday. Um Liz Cheney raised the notion of witness intimidation. That's what got Nixon in trouble. That was one of the things that one one of the counts he got against Nixon. Again, deja vu. Uh, and I'm there. There's some things I'm sure Fox News and the right are going to jump on whether uh, Trump actually uh, tried to steer the SUV uh, up to the hill after his January 6th rally, and whether he he, right. he he hit a Secret Service agent or not. She didn't say she was there. She said she was told that. It's also <laughs> irrelevant. It doesn't matter. I mean, you knew oh, well, he was out of control. You knew he was dangerous. The things that she knew about, the things where she was in the room, that's what mattered. What mattered was that Trump knew an armed insurrection was headed to the Capitol with the potential of violence. And I would just add one more thing. I now want to see Pat Cipollone and some of those other people testify. I mean, I mean, they and and if they don't, they ought to bring a contempt citation against them. Uh, and if we, if if people like uh, sycophants like uh, Kevin McCarthy say, well, I, you know, she misrepresented. Well, Kevin, testify. You've been invited. You have your you have your opportunity. So, uh, I think the sycophant's name is Ornato. He now works for Trump. Uh, if he wants to testify under oath, that's fine. But once he's under oath and he says he didn't say that, they get to ask him everything else under oath. Right. All right? He, he is, he's given up any privilege that he has. And, and, you know, maybe it'll be a he. I never told her that. She says I did. She said, you know, I would trust her yeah. a thousand times. But it's not really that bad. But once he goes in there, just like yeah. Jenny Thomas, she wanted to testify. Until a lawyer said, uh, excuse me, Ms. Thomas, you really don't want to do this. All right? So th th this guy's got to make a real decision as to whether, because once you go under oath, dude, you, you, you can't pick and choose. No, you can't. And I, but, you know, I really want us to keep our eye on the ball. This is what, this is, if, if they criminally indict Trump, and I think the odds are much greater today or greater today than they were three or four days ago, uh, this is going to be a central part uh, of any indictment. And again, I think you made the good point, James, a minute ago. It's not going to stop. There's more no. hearings. There are other people. There are people no. who so far have been reluctant to come forth. I think Ms. Hutchinson uh, is going to embolden some of those people. Final point I make about her, she's going to need all the friends and support she can get uh, in the times ahead because Trump world and their lackeys are going to go after her viciously. That's what they do. But from what we've seen, James, I agree with you about her appearance on Tuesday. She'll be okay. I'm not Understand, you know, you and I like boxing. For people who are unfamiliar with boxing, if you go to a big fight, you know, but you go to heavyweight championship, well, right. they actually have three or four fights before that. It's called the undercard, all right? And some of the undercard fights can be quite good. They can be maybe a middleweight championship. This is not the main event. There's more. I've been wrong about very little with this committee. They got bigger, they got bigger more dramatic things coming. Stand by. 
stand, stand by. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, John Dean, I guess, was the undercard in 1973. Uh, it may be the main event of those hearings where when Alex Butterfield testified, there was a taping system. We may not get that lucky uh, this time. But this committee has more stuff coming. They made that right. clear. And uh, based on their performance so far, no one can doubt that. Right. They, they, this, the, 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 the big moment has not come yet. The big moment will come in late July. But this, this was a hell of an undercard fight, let me tell you. Yeah, you know, I, I would give it a higher rating than an undercard, but, uh, you know, well, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you, you don't know what the feature is. They don't no. view this as the, they don't view this no. as the feature fight. That no, we can see. I got, look, it'd, be, it'd have to be I, awfully good to, to beat this, but. Well, it, as, as, as. My friend Mr. Dean said they better have something big, and I think he was suspicious whether they would, and they did. They did. Yeah, and, you uh, know, and I think everybody know. had the same thing that, you know, we thought, remember, the filmmaker has not been heard from yet. With the film. The film. With, with the film. With the film, just, right. Just remember. There's, that, it, yes. That, that, that could be the tapes, James. Could, that could, could be. be the tapes. Could be. I, yeah. I, I, I'm getting vibes. Okay, I, if, if I'll be honest with our listeners. I, I don't know anything for certain, but I, 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 I can smell ether. And the ether says there's bigger shit coming. Yeah, and based on the reporting I read in the New York Times and the Washington Post today, uh, uh, people like Maggie Haberman and others talking to Trump World, Trump World is, Trump World is in a state of shock. Uh, after Tuesday's uh, hearings, I mean they—they're going to come up with their excuses. They're going to come up with their their uh, their their spins. But man, uh, they were quiet in the beginning because you know what? They didn't have anything to say. Cause so, so one of like one of your younger people that work for you in journalism, and they're always good journalists are looking to do a book and make some money. I'll, I'll give you a, a title for a book, and somebody does it. The shit that Trump tried to do and was too incompetent to do it. We all know all the crazy things he did. Somebody needs to catalog all the crazy crap that he tried to do. Well, I'm for that book. as the second right. book uh, on, the, on the list after we finish the book on all the criminal things that he did and why he ought to be in an orange jumpsuit. Once that's finished, mm -hmm. then they, I think they, they that's got, a good book. They, they, people are chronicling that. But yeah. He, he, <laughs> Could you imagine if he was confident what would have happened? <laughs> well, that's no. the – well, you know, imagine him coming back in three years. My God. Uh, I, that's not going to happen. Well, I don't think it's going to happen either. But, no. uh, you know, no. he, he still has some clout. He proved that in a couple primaries this week, one in Illinois in particular. Uh, I think he's got to have less – I mean, there have got to be people so embarrassed after, after watching this <laughs> horror scene. <laughs> embarrassed. If you went through all of this, oh, oh. it took this to embarrass you, right? Well, <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm talking about some of those senators and some of those representatives oh. who kind of shut their eyes to it. So anyway, we will be, we, <laughs> this is a saga that is going to continue for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think James is right. There's going to be more big stuff, and we just can't wait for it to happen. No. Okay. Stand by. Bigger things are coming.
Hey, James, we just saw the most seismic Supreme Court week in ages, overturning abortion protections, gutting sensible gun control, and tearing a hole in the separation of church and state. There is no one, no one better to discuss the impact than Linda Greenhouse, who covered the Supreme Court with such distinction for the New York Times and now is a professor at Yale Law School. Linda, we really are honored to have you join us. You wrote that the simple reason the Republicans on the court did what they did was because they could. They could also sabotage gay marriage, contraceptives, libel protections, issues that have been raised by some of these justices. Before we go deeper on abortion, are there real concerns that this is an out-of-control right-wing court? Oh, I, I mean, there's not even a discussion to be had about that. Yes, it is a supermajority that seems to recognize uh, no limits, takes no cognizance of the practical impact of what they're doing, what the public thinks about it. Uh, they're just doing what they were put there to do. And, and just to take those, I mean, gay marriage, uh, Clarence Thomas said, let's visit it. Now, they all said, no, no, this is the, I think, in a very, in very political wording, said this is just about abortion. But there's no reason they can't revisit gay marriage and the other things. And New York Times of East Sullivan, which at least two of them uh, have said ought to be revisited. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll push back a bit on the same-sex marriage issue. I don't think they're about to overturn Obergefell, the 2015 same-sex marriage decision. What they are going to do and what they're teed up to do in the coming term is carve as big a hole in the anti-discrimination protections for same-sex couples as they possibly can in the name of religion. And, uh, you know, we can't talk about the term without talking about the astonishing uh, religious supremacy decisions that are pouring out of the, the Roberts court. And that's, that's going to be the, the weapon that they're going to use against same-sex marriage. And there was one uh, this week, uh, too, about the football coach. Uh, they said had a constitutional right to have a team prayer on the 50-yard line. As you say, this follows a number of others. They, they, they really are, I hope this isn't an overstatement, but they're eager for America to become more of a theocracy, a more religiously uh, directed country. Well, not just religiously directed. I think they wanted to be a Christian theocracy, right? I mean, how do you think they would have come out had it been a Muslim football coach who decided to lay down a prayer rug on the 50-yard line and kneel down and pray to Allah? I really don't think the case would have come out the same way. No, I think you're probably right. I know you're right uh, because you're always right in the Supreme Court. But let's get back to abortion for a minute. Uh, it's going to go back to the states. Uh, any woman of means living in Texas or Mississippi or anywhere else, she's she not going to have any problem getting an abortion. She just gets on an airplane. If the impact is going to fall hardest on, on, on poor women. State laws seem to be changing by the day, Linda. Where, where do you think we're likely to be in a year or two? We're likely to be a country divided in half, you know. I mean, it's going to be uh, uh, the run-up to the Civil War, half slave and half free. Uh, you know, women free to pursue their own fate as they wish it, and women trapped in states that want them to be, uh, you know, mothers above all else. And it, it's um, it's an astonishing situation. I mean, to put it in perspective, so, you know, Ireland freed itself from the domination of the church and came up with 
free access to abortion. Um, there's a what's known as the green wave that's rolling through Latin America. So we have a right to abortion in Mexico and Argentina. All these countries that were once under the thumb of the Catholic Church in terms of their civil law have managed to see the light and throw that off. This country is just running backwards. Our, our closest companion now is Poland. And uh, that's, that's, the way, that's the way it's going to be, evidently. I'm going to turn it over to James, but I, I'm I'm struck when you mention uh, the civil pre-Civil War period. I mean, there really was the great debate in in, in the in the uh, Lincoln Douglas. Douglas talked about popular sovereignty, and Lincoln talked about a house divided. Uh, that's not dissimilar to the debate we're having today uh, after that decision. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a long time since since the the court has viewed human rights as subject to veto by the individual states and. That's the situation we're in now. James Carville. Okay, so Jill said, don't talk too much, let Linda talk. So I'm going to ask you a word, originalism. Tell me in our audience what that means and why it's a word they should be familiar with. So originalism is a phony method of constitutional interpretation that was devised by a couple of right-wing think tanks early in the Reagan years to achieve the result that we're now seeing. So uh, a majority of justices can, under this originalism banner, if they choose to, uh, look back through history and cherry pick the historical incidents or bits of old decisions or bits of this and that that fit their design and uh, cobble them together as uh, Sam Alito did in the Mississippi abortion opinion and say, look, uh, we're bound to uh, honor history and tradition. That's gotta be the basis for constitutional interpretation. And look at this history that I'm presenting you with. You know, what part of it don't you like? Well, it's highly selective. It's just a cover for judicial activism. And I think in the abortion case and in the gun case, it was, it's acting as a cover for uh, the fact that these majority justices are just doing what they want to do as a matter of policy. So one, uh, uh, I'll go to two words now. Chevron deference. Why should we care about this kind of arcane-sounding two words? Uh, so I don't think we should care too much about Chevron deference, actually. <laughs> so Chevron deference is a doctrine that says that uh, <clears throat> when a law, when, when a statute that governs a federal executive branch agency is ambiguous. Uh, the court should defer to the judgment of that agency if it's come up with a plausible interpretation of its authority. Uh, that come, it derives from a, a decision written by Justice John Paul Stevens early in the Reagan years. And, you know, the country lived pretty well without it. And, and uh, it's basically dead now. It hasn't been cited by the court for a couple of years. But I think what you're getting at, James, is what designs does this majority have on the administrative state, on the organization of government as we know it today? It's not, Chevron's a bit of a diversion. What they're going for, okay. some, something called the non-delegation doctrine. And that means that, uh, unless Congress has spoken with extreme specificity 
to the authority of a federal agency to do precisely X or Y or Z, uh, that's not valid. And uh, uh, the agency's exercise of authority that's not been specifically, explicitly granted is a violation of separation of powers because it's up to the legislative branch, not the executive branch, to make the law. That is a disabling theory. It, it has been, uh, it got squelched way back in the New Deal days and Justice Gorsuch and some of his pals are trying to revive it and it's a way to really just tie the hands of, of the executive branch and 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 there's that's a, that's a serious threat right now, actually. In the court, in their case where they're going to have a decision before the end of this term that talks about the, the authority of regulatory agencies. That's a big fear in the environmental case that's going to be decided, decided tomorrow uh, on Friday. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to do in that case. They have some several options. Okay, so I, maybe I was overly worried about it because living here in Louisiana, the, you know, we're so impacted by environmental issues that you, you can't believe it. And anything that weakens the ability to have these regulations is going to, you know, we're being adversely impacted now. It's going to be worse. Oh, yeah. No, no. I wasn't saying not to worry about it, but um, I, I thought what you were getting at was not so much what the holding is going to be in this case, but are they going to use this case as a vehicle to really sort of, you know, bring down the administrative state? And that's possible, but right. we don't know that yet because it hasn't been decided yet. Okay, well, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed. Albert, to you. <laughs> Let me ask you, Linda, about a couple of justices. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, no one is surprised by her abortion vote, but when she was confirmed in a historically rushed vote right before an election, some progressives like Noah Feldman praised her qualifications and suggested she might be more independent. After two terms, isn't she proving to be a down-the-line right-winger? Oh, don't get me started on Noah Feldman, please. I mean, I don't know what he... he no, was go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you know, he... He reviewed my um, very prescient book, which is out in the marketplace called Justice on the Brink, in which I had the nerve to criticize Amy Barrett and point out exactly the kind of justice that she was going to turn out to be. And he uh, came to her defense in, in the review. Uh, and in my opinion, he should have been disqualified from reviewing the book because he was publicly a big supporter of hers, right, urging her confirmation. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave that aside. Um, yeah, she's turned out to be exactly what one would have expected. And, um, you know, I thought it was interesting and a little bit sad that she didn't feel moved to write in the abortion decision. Uh, you know, we, we knew how she was going to vote, and she voted exactly the way President Trump wanted her to vote. And I thought she might have had the um, self-respect to try to explain herself, but she didn't. Yeah, well, I hope, uh, you know, Mr. Feldman wrote uh, uh, pieces about what terrible decisions these were. I hope he realized uh, that his friend uh, uh, Justice Barrett was uh, responsible for those. Let me get to Justice Alito. Our dear friend, Walter, the late Walter Dellinger, thought, uh, said Alito just thought he was smarter than all the others, including Roberts, and that he really should be the chief. He does seem, Linda, like a very angry, vindictive man. Absolutely. I mean, everybody I know who's encountered Sam Alito, uh, including a 
a friend of mine who's a federal judge who heard him speak at some judicial conference and really didn't have any preconception or wasn't, you know, grinding any acts, said to me, why is Alito so angry? I mean, I think what will be fascinating is to see going ahead into the next term, now that he's won everything, is he still angry? Because he's been he has been winning quite a lot, and, and the source of his anger and just kind of, you know, grudging attitude of kind of victimhood, I, I've called it, you know, kind of, uh, kind of grievance conservatism. You know, we're winning, but we're still mad. Uh, yeah. It'll be very interesting to see if he carries that forward. Yeah, boy, he does come across, uh, you know, as a, as a very, very angry man. Let me ask you one more. Uh, you know, as well as conservative— this court also, I think, rarely is going to go against the interests of the Republican Party. Uh, these are really, a number of them were Republican activists. And when it comes to voting rights, gerrymandering, or anything else that affects Republican interest, I think you can count on at least a five or six uh, member majority. Fair? Yes, I agree with you. I have really nothing to add to what you just said. Yeah. Well, I, so so therefore, when the, the next time that Justice Barrett says we're not just a bunch of partisan hacks, if you want to take out hacks, fine. They're partisan operatives. Uh, James Carville. So, so Linda, you've been covering it for 30 plus years, and a young Linda Greenhouse is starting to cover the court. When you started covering the court, I, I, I assume I'm told it was like collegiality; people would disagree, but that now it, it's in a a zone that it's historically hasn't been in in, in our our lifetimes, which unfortunately span a pretty good a pretty good amount of time. Do you see the whole collegiality thing just breaking down for the immediate term future, where, where they're just at each other's throats, or, or what are we going to see here? Well, I'll, I'll put it somewhat differently because. Um, I think it's not so much collegiality. You know, I don't expect them all to sort of go out to the movies on a Friday night or something like that. Right. I think it's more a kind of a respect for one another and, and willingness to, to, to deal, uh, you know, sort of honestly with the issues that confront all of us. Those are the issues that reach the Supreme Court. So the sort of essence of the court's vulnerability right now, I think, is that, say, when I started covering the court in the late 1970s, you could look at the court and you could agree with it or disagree with it. But what you couldn't say is that these individual justices are just carrying water for the party, for the president who nominated them, because, you know, there was William Brennan nominated by Eisenhower, who was, you know, kind of the liberal uh, lion of the court. There was Byron White nominated by JFK, who dissented in Roe, who dissented in Miranda. So in other words, you, you would come away with the feeling that, okay, you know, like it or not, these individuals are confronting the legal issues that, that they have to decide, and they're doing it to their best way of being lawyers and judges. Now you look at the bench and the six of them in the supermajority, all nominated by presidents who ran on a platform pledging them to appoint judges who would 
overturn Roe against Wade. You know, what is the public supposed to think about this? And, you know, it, it's, it's really hard for me to um, retain whatever confidence I have uh, in the ability of the court to do the job that we needed to do, which is a, to, to fairly approach and decide our hardest legal problems. It's, it's really a depressing time. Well, it, it it is, and I mean, apparently the public uh, shares your view because the, the polling is historically horrific for the court. I mean, there always, you know, people complained about it and protested and everything, but there was some sense that they had, you know, that they kind of read the law and, you know, struggled and tried to come up with, you know, controversial but well thought out answers to problems we have, and I don't think people have that sense anymore. I really don't. I think they just think it's just, it's like a congressional majority. It just does whatever it can get away with. Yeah, I mean, you know, pe people don't read Supreme Court opinions. I understand that. But, you know, no. so here's the court in Dobbs, the Mississippi abortion case. I mean, of course the court can overturn its precedents. Of course the court's overturned precedents over time. But when it does that, it gives reasons. It gives reasons. It tells you, okay, we have to overturn that president because look what's changed. You know, look what's different now. There's nothing different now from when the court decided Roe in 1973. The only difference, the only thing that's changed are the justices. And so if you read the Alito opinion for all its length and all its invocation of the phony history and all that, there's no law in it. There's no reason in it. It's just, as I said in my column the other day, they did it because they could, and and they really, they couldn't even find a way to hide that. People should read it and look for law and look for women, look for a sense of the impact on women. Just read it as, you know, literature, however, but, uh, you know, they just shouldn't get away with claiming that they've done something that's, that is passed, that they can pass off as law. Before I turn right back to our quick question, it's almost doctrine on the right that Roe was sloppily reasoned and sloppily written. What, what's your, just as a legal scholar, was Roe grounded in reason and was the opinion well written? Well, I, I have two answers to that. One is, after 50 years, who cares? Who cares? Roe has been right, the okay. governing principle right. in this country, guaranteeing women the right to design their lives as they wish for two generations. Who cares about substantive due process and all that stuff? That's one answer. The other answer is, of course, Roe came out of actual precedent and, and decisions of the court. It grew organically out of the birth control case, Griswold in 1965. That grew organically out of cases uh, in the 30s and 40s that guaranteed as an aspect of liberty in the due process clause uh, families to send their children to private school uh, and make important decisions that came within the, the kind of rubric of uh, liberty protected in the due process clause. So, uh, you know, the court wasn't sort of making anything up. It was perfectly well argued. But as I say, you know, people who uh, wanted Roe overturned didn't want it overturned because they didn't like the legal reasoning. They wanted it overturned because they didn't like what it did. 
And and I think we we have to be honest about that. Okay, Ralph. Well. Linda Greenhouse, you have been a fabulous guest. Uh, we had high expectations. You exceeded them. And everyone out there, uh, either go to Amazon or your bookstore and get Justice on the Brink by the best Supreme Court reporter, maybe in history, certainly in our lifetime. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I, I appreciate it so much, Linda. It's just, it's just such an honor to, to be able to interview. I'll tell you one funny story before you go. Uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, she's 24. She grew up in New Orleans. She'd never been that political. And, you know, New Orleans and Metairie, where Amy Coney Bryant grew up in, it's like growing up in Manhattan and looking at people at Long Island. It's a, the kind of exaggerated thing. She said, Daddy, I never thought anybody from Metairie would have control over my body. <laughs> <laughs> How can you have a daughter anyway, who's not very political? She had that kind of New Orleans arrogance about her, you know? Like, God damn, you're telling me somebody from Metairie is telling me what to do. It's, 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 yeah. it's kind of a... James, you're going to get me in trouble with Joe Abramson because I promised that Linda would only be on for 15 minutes. So we've exceeded our limit. But, boy, it was worth it. Again, Linda Greenhouse, thank you so much. Okay, guys. My pleasure. We'll start with KB in Portland, Oregon, James. He said he talks to his brother occasionally about politics. His brother's from Texas, and he's not particularly plugged into the news, but it seems like the only stuff he hears about politics are some of the woke positions of Democrats. Do you have any suggestions on how to talk about these things to people who live in a relatively conservative area without coming across as, coming across as crazy? Well, I, you know, I, I, I just don't think – there's some people in the country, they're very few, that want to have this conversation, and – Look, I, I'm a big believer in that people have a right to be called what they want to be called. Actually, uh, people don't want to be called Latinx. Common courtesy dictates the way you dress someone. When I was dating my wife, Clayton Yider was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And he was the first Republican member, chairman of the Republican National Committee to call it the Democratic Party as opposed to the Democrat Party. And they asked him why he did that, and he said, because a political party has a right to be called what it wants to be called. And when you try to address people in a way that a majority of the people don't want to be addressed, it puts people off. It, it's that simple. If, if there's a consensus that people want to be addressed a certain way, common manners compels you to address them that way. But it's ill-mannered to address people in a way that they don't address themselves. That, that's the best answer I can give you. You know, at, at some point, courtesy answers a lot of questions. And to, in my opinion, the woke are some of the most discourteous people that I've ever been around. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I, I second everything you just said. But, yeah, but, but yeah. Like, look, if it becomes part of the, the lexicon... That, 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 you know, people want to be called Latinx. I don't have a problem with calling people Latinx. That bother me, but they don't want, that's not the way to address right. each other. So I'm, I'm going to go with the way that, that people talk and Agreed. not try to act superior. We're going to stay in the great Pacific Northwest. Fred oh, in right. Seattle, Washington says, put aside the questions of whether Biden runs again. I agree with James, he's not going to. And the future of Kamala Harris, which I don't think is terribly bright. 
What are the pros and cons of the following possible 24 Democratic presidential candidates? Governor Gretchen Whitman, uh, Whitmer, rather, Mayor Mitch Landrieu, Rep. Val Demings, Governor Jared Polis. Um, Fred, I think, first of all, that uh, it could be wide open. I think Mitch Landrieu, James's favorite candidate, would really be a strong candidate. I think Gretchen Whitmer, who's likely to win a big, big um, re-election, uh, would be certainly in the mix. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid Val Demings, who I admire a lot, is going to lose in Florida, which pretty much takes her out. And rather than the Colorado governor, I'd turn to the California governor and make one point. I think it's going to be chosen from people who are not in Congress. I don't think the country's going to be in a mood to elect a member of Congress next time. I think it's held in such low repute. So I think looking to those governors, looking to the Mitch Landrews, uh, someone like that uh, is where I think the Democrats should and ought to go in 2024. James. Well, he makes a good point. There is an enormous amount of talent in a Democratic Party. And it, it's going to flourish. It's going to come up. And, and any of the people, you know, I, I, I'm a big supporter of Al's. She, she has a tough election. It's going to be probably pretty hard, even if, if, if she pulls it off and wins, to go from here to there. But she's going to be a, a, a force in Democratic politics. My friend Ruben Gallego in, in, in Arizona. That, that, that's a bucket load of talent that's, that's under 60 years old in this party. And we should never forget that. And we're going to have to have a, a, a flush this thing out and give these people a, a stage and a forum and look at them. But I think people are going to be astonished. And, Ben, you can go through that 2018 congressional class. There's some really, really talented. Of course, Newsom. You know, Raphael Warnock. Is it, you know, he's in a tough re-election battle. He's a really talented guy. I mean, really talented. I mean, there's, there's real talent out there. Yeah. And not all of it is, you know, over 70. No, I agree. I just, I, I think Congress is not going to be a great place to run from next time. But, but, maybe but, but not, but, but. There's but, a lot of know, town out there. There are other governors, too. Yeah. Uh, that, that there'll be. Uh, well, I, mean, well, I love Whitman. Yeah. I mean, she's, yeah. you know, you're right. Newsom has got the biggest state. I mean, let let them. J.B. Pritzker wants to run. That's great. Let them all run. Okay, Charlie in Louisville, Kentucky, says I've observed that the Republicans has a strong message. They have a strong message discipline as election day nears. Is there a role for the Democrats to try to bring out the worst of the GOP ideas in November? And this is a twin question because Ken in East Orange asked similarly: Can Democrats take advantage? of some of the things they've done, like infrastructure and gun legislation, and also some of the things like the January 6th hearing and the Supreme Court decisions. This is the Democratic agenda in the next five months or four months, James. Well, if we, let me try to, maybe I'm a little bit not answering the question, but in my mind, I'm answering the question. If you're a supporter of the Democratic Party, if you're a supporter of sanity in the United States, not just the Democratic Party, if you, if you believe in sanity, you're almost compelled to vote Democratic. The Democratic Party is a coalition. And by nature, when you're in a coalition, it, it, it requires you to accept some views that you're not particularly enthusiastic about it. And the problem is, because of gerrymandering, because of sorting, because of the Electoral College, because of the composition of the Senate, 
in order for us to win anything, we have to have our coalition all hitting on all cylinders. Once you take one part out of the coalition, then it spells electoral trouble for you. And what disheartens me is that some of the more leftist elements of our coalition are out telling people right now, in, in almost July of an election year, that it's all Biden's fault. He hasn't done anything for you. Well, you know, when AOC says that, or, or, or Cory Bush, or John Oliver, or Chris Hayes, or even Howard Stern, well, we need it to get enhanced youth turnout. That's not going to help. And, and if people don't understand it, and it's all, well, it's the, it's, it was a, a, a guy writes a column in the Post, Perry Bacon, I seems to be a, a, a kind of bright young guy, said it's all the Democratic establishment's fault. Oh, really? You're telling me that Ralph Nader didn't have anything to do with Samuel Alito being on the Supreme Court? Give me a break. You're going to tell me that Jill Stein, by the way, Ralph Nader got way more votes in Florida than Al Gore to run by. Jill Stein got more votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin than Hillary to run by. So after we come in and run the third parties, then we blame the establishment Democrats, you know, for doing this. And it's, it's it, when you think about it, it's really stupid. All right, I'm not. I'm not here to, to defend that 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 Democrats, you know, don't do things that that to take money from corporate interests or, or or too cozy with pharma or anything else. They didn't cause these problems. These problems were caused by left-wing Democrats trying to be pure, attacking people. You, you're going to tell me that Hillary Clinton would have put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, or Neil Gorsuch, or Gore would have put Samuel? Of course not. Of course not. And the cause and the correlation in cause is almost direct. Look at your own look at your own self in the mirror and see the destruction that you've caused this country. James, uh, a sequel from Claire in Atlantic Heights, New Jersey, who said these nightmare Supreme Court decisions over the last few days should mean a landslide for Democrats, but she fears we're going to screw up the messaging again. Claire, your hope and your fear, I think, are both justified. These are issues, abortion, guns, and also I'd throw in the January 6th committee. These are issues where it's not going to be as big as inflation or gasoline prices, but on the margins, they can really make a difference. Bigger turnout, you know, persuade a few of the persuadables. Uh, but I think if the Democrats, to take the, the Roe case, if the Democrats want to focus on impeaching uh, Brett Kavanaugh, well, you know, they can do that won't get anywhere and the country will, it'll just distract from the real debate, which is to try to restore the rights of Roe. Uh, and if they want to talk about uh, increasing the size of the court, that's fine. It ain't going to happen. So uh, what will happen is if they get out and they register voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina and elsewhere, and secondly, if they go and they try to persuade people who may be soft pro-life people, who, who, who may not be totally cognizant of the sweeping nature of what the court did. Michelle Goldberg had a good piece in the New York Times this past week in which she pointed out the other side, the pro-anti-abortion anti side, 
really reached out to try to get some converts. They weren't going to get people from NARAL. They weren't going to get people from Planned Parenthood. But they did. The, the, too often, the, the liberal groups uh, think anyone who doesn't agree with them 100% isn't worth talking to. Big mistake. You know, it, 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 I'm not optimistic, but I'll tell you, it, how do you measure success? It, there's a piece in Time magazine that someone sent me, and I, I wish I could tell you, but it was by a, a woman. Clearly, it, in, do you measure success by the cultural changes you see? You have more women of color as film directors. You have more non-binary students at the Yale Law School. You have more, you know, women CEOs, everything. They're fine with that. They, they measure it by political success. What, what's the value of a Supreme Court justice? What's the value of a Senate seat? Does that count as, 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 as much as, as how many films you make about, you know, marginalized people? I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't make films about marginalized not, not not saying that at all, but if that becomes your standard for what is valued in society, you're going to lose elections, all right? That's not... There is nothing, there is no substitute for victory. And by victory, I mean winning seats, winning presidential races, appointing Supreme Court justices. You can have all of the cultural triumphs you want. You can have all the pronouns of nameplates you want. You can terrorize people all you want. You're losing. God damn it, you're losing. And it's not, you're hurting the country. Which is foolishness. So I'm, I'm, I'm just how, how do you measure success? And you know, as long as you measure success by the student body at Yale Law School, and not what's coming out of Supreme Court or the Congress or, or, or the criminality of the previous administration, I think I, I think your head's in the wrong place. All right, James, Kyle in Portland, Oregon, says he's very concerned, he or she, I'm not sure, because um, uh, Kyle can be a man or right, a woman. Entitled to us to know the pronoun here, but go ahead. All right, so uh, Kyle is very concerned that I cannot go public without worrying about, go out in the public without people, without worrying about people with concealed guns surrounding me. I also feel strongly about abortion. Uh, which of those two do you think is the policy that might move more people to vote this November? It's a really good question, okay? If, if, if obviously, if you read commentary, everything, you, you say abortion. You know, I talk to a lot of people that do focus groups. And <clears throat> the, I'm not saying the gun thing is powerful because it, I understand where, where people are, you know. But the, the, what they should be done is, they're teaching law school and civil law, you, you read Articles of civil code, I think they call it paramateria. You have to read them together. And I think the, the critique ought to be, you know, that in, in, when voters talk about it, they don't think it makes any sense. They're confused. They don't understand. Well, you have all of these shootings, and they're actually making it easier for people to carry a gun. That doesn't make sense. Or abortion has been legal in this country for 49 years. And they're just going to take it away. It, they have, the, the, the public has some, they're trying to grapple with this. And we should help them grapple with it because it doesn't make any sense. And we should talk about it in a common sense way. And, and 
you know, I, I keep getting reports of people still are denying to themselves that, that Roe is overturned. They can't believe it because that's the way they've lived their whole lives, a lot of people. So it's, it's, it's in, in, if, if we use it to attack Joe Biden or, or attack the Democratic establishment or whatever the, that is, you, you, that's not what people are. It, how did this happen? How can we rectify it? What's common sense? That's, what they, that's the way they look at it. Yeah, I agree. I think the gun issue, look, I give Chris Murphy great credit uh, for that small incremental step, the, the bill, that the gun bill that passed. First By the way, he's, he's somebody. He, 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 he might be a presidential candidate. That's well, not out of the realm of possibility. I like Chris Murphy a lot. He's I talented. have reservations about someone coming from the Congress, but that's okay. I, 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 I'm if, just saying. If I'm, I'm wrong on that, I think Chris Murphy would be a good one. But he deserves right. credit. It's a small step. But there's a lot more to be done. Uh, with that. I mean, a, I, I, James, I want to know the justification for AR-15s to be in the hands of any civilians. There's none. Right. So therefore, I, and I think most Americans would agree with that. And those kids who were those poor little kids and those teachers who were killed in Udall, they were killed by what? An AR-15. The same thing with a Buffalo grocery market. So I don't think Democrats should, in most places, should shy away from that issue. Uh, I don't know whether it resonates as much as abortion, but I think both of them on the margins can make a difference. If they By the way, you it. know, I, I'm hearing pretty good things out of Texas about Beto. I mean, I, maybe the guy, you know, in Texas in a year that's shaping like this, I, I, I admit it's extremely difficult, but I, people that normally are not, kind of Beto fans or thought he shouldn't run. They're saying, you know what, that guy's gotten, he, he's sounding pretty good. And, and, you know, actually, to the extent the public polls mean anything, it, it, he's closed it a, a decent amount. He's gone from like 15 down to five down. Yeah. So I don't, but and he's really communicating well. He's, you know, he's showing some, some passion. I, so I don't know, maybe, you know, sometimes things go a different way than you think. But right now, I'd give Beto high marks. Yeah, and I, James, I also heard from somebody who's really smart in Ohio politics who a month ago thought that Tim Ryan, the Democratic candidate, had virtually no chance. And now says, you know, I think he's got a shot. J.D. Vance has proven to be a, a less stellar candidate uh, than uh, people thought first time he's running. And Ryan is uh, Ryan's doing pretty well. It's still, you know, it's still a little bit of a long shot, but it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, look, what I'm worried about, actually worried about Colorado, Washington State. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then Tim right, Ryan and Beto O'Rourke aren't going to, you know. Yeah. So anyway, Ohio, we have, this is from Sutton, I think it's Sutton Forest in Australia. Either that or from Sutton in Forest, Australia. Uh, but he said, from Australia, but identifying as a global citizen, am I right to be concerned for the fate of the United States? Yes, you are right. There is a, I mean, we really are in danger of turning, turning into a much more autocratic country than we ever dreamed. If you look at what's happening to education, book bannings, uh, uh, right-wing legislators taking over uh, great universities. Uh, if you look as Linda Greenhouse spoke about the out-of-control, arrogant right-wing court with their own agenda uh, and, and, and gerrymandering districts all over the country. I think if Republicans win a big victory in 2022, there's two terrible ramifications. Number one, it's a vindication of everything Trump and the others did, and that's really tragic. Uh, and number two, I think they will be emboldened 
uh, to do things that really should cause you something to worry about the fate of the United States. It should be, if, to worry about the fate of the United States is to worry about the fate of Australia. If you don't have the United States, you're going to get overrun by the Chinese. Just like you, you would have been overrun by the Japanese if you didn't have the United States in the 1940s. Absolutely. And Australia and the United States have really, really close relations and have many, many common interests. So as a citizen of the world, you should be very worried about the United States. And if that, the world is your first loyalty, there's a lot to worry about. If your second loyalty is Australia, there's a lot to worry about too. Because what a, a, a non-democratic, weak, divided United States does not pretend good for Australia. So yeah. you got two things to be worried about. You're absolutely right. Our final question is a good one. Jim in Woodland, California. Said, would it help the integrity of our broken election system to increase the penalties for threatening or intimidating poll workers and election officials, perhaps to the level of hate crimes? Good question, James. Yeah, damn right. You know what? It's a very good question, and it's a very good idea. And that would be something, you know, wouldn't change anything, but could help on the margins. I, I hope some Democratic uh, congressman or senator or, or, or something is listening to the show, we should introduce a bill to do that. Yep. That's a great idea. In any poll worker, be, be it Republican, Democrat, or anything. You know, when you think about when you vote, and I, I'd voted in the same place for a while, you, you know that it's usually, it, it, that's a, by the way, voting officials are overwhelmingly female. Oh, I, I bet you easily three-quarters of the people who work on election day. There's a brilliant young woman that testified from Georgia. Oh, Moss, my God. I think it was. The threat she and had. This, this is a hell of an idea, and we should really push this. This is a great idea and a great thing, you know, for, for, for people to vote on and advocate. Bravo. Bravo. Jim, Jim, you did it. I want to tell you, our listeners are so good, James. They that, are. Uh, you know, keep those ideas, those cards, those emails, those suggestions coming. Uh, we hate not to get to all of them, but we, we try to get to them the following week if we can. But please uh, continue to send uh, them in. One of these weeks, I want to just get one of our listeners a guess. Because I, 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 think, I, I think that in this question, you know, this, this is a, a, a very good observation uh, that, that's made in this, this person in California. So, I, great. That's a great idea. Jim, we want to keep hearing from you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. There are some anti-abortion advocates who are devoutly sincere. Then there are others. Mary Miller, a right-wing, Trump-loving Illinois representative who just won a primary this week, thanked Trump and the Supreme Court for a, quote, victory for white people. A victory for white people. And then Yesley Vega, a Republican congressional candidate in Virginia, said someone, you know, they may not get pregnant when they're raped because, quote, it's not happening organically and it's over quickly, end quote. She's in that tradition of the crazy Missouri Senate candidate, Todd Aitken. You know, Ms. Miller and Ms. Vega probably never have been raped. I mean, that's good. But they ought to spend some time talking to women who have been, and they then wouldn't say such stupid things. James. 
So I'm read from New York Times. Frederick Maloney, that's the Sean Maloney, the, the head of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, a fairly important operation in this cycle, was enjoying himself s- sipping remnants of a soda from Shake Shack, gesturing to three to three aides monitoring our conversation when in the middle of March in the DCCC's new Washington headquarters where cubicle nameplates provide both the job title and the preferred pronouns of the mostly Gen Z employees. So just so you know, that's what the people that are most critical to trying to hold a house house seat for for the Democrats are doing. They're having nameplates with pronouns on it. Tell me how that makes any sense. I mean, when you are a young staffer in Washington, you got one job, to work your ass off, you know, 16, 17 hours a day. And it's just, it, it, you know, it, it, it bleeds off of Reed Tom Etzel in the Times today. See our last show with Ryan Grimm. It's just another illustration of how progressive advocacy is so irrelevant to 99% of people's lives in this country. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's not just that it's not, it, it's neutral, it, it, it's debilitating. It is. Give me a, Again, you know, my, anybody my out there who, who hasn't read that Intercept piece from Ryan Grimm, who we had last week, so listen to the show and read it. And yeah, you if, read it. Not if you're show. a progressive Democrat, well, that's right. James, I stand corrected. Listen to our show and then read it. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsor, Real Paper, in our show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. You know, when you do, it makes this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.